Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, make redemption real for us this morning. Amen. Our new sermon series entitled Christ and Culture has begun, and we are creating in the early stages of this sermon series a framework through which we can view a variety of important cultural themes. And we've been talking about creation and then the fall, and now today we get to redemption. And this is why I'm a Christian, and it's why I think you're a Christian. The idea of redemption is what makes Christianity unique. And I want to speak of redemption today in light of the passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The church in Corinth possessed a culture of negative regard. The church was filled with a competitive drive, with contempt, Uh, with condemnation, with gossip, with pride, with spiritual arrogance, with people hogging all of the bread for the Lord's Supper so that latecomers wouldn't have any, people who debated uh, regarding spiritual gifts, believing that what they brought to the table was more important than what others brought. Culture of negative regard. And I remember an episode in my own life that had to do with the power, the intense power of negative regard. Uh, I experienced this a little while ago when I attended a very opulent, extravagant party for clergy. So it was so opulent that at the main table where there was laid out a beautiful buffet, at the center of it, was a $500 wheel of Stilton cheese carved out in the middle and filled with sherry. Why? I don't, you could ladle it, and, and you'd get cheesy wine in a glass, and you would drink it and pretend that you liked it. A minister friend and I went to the party together, And at the end of the evening, and after several cocktails, my friend and I shared a conversation with an older and well-respected minister. After a while, the three of us were making connections and talking about the acquaintances and friends that we shared in common. And uh, after a while, we discovered that we, all three of us, shared in our lives, the effect of a very prominent and impressive minister, uh, a very well-respected person. But then, this elder minister who was speaking to my friend and I motioned for us to come closer, and he smiled wryly as if he had something sweet in his mouth, and he said, you know, the man we were just talking about, the one that you respect so much. You do know that he had an affair 35 years ago, and I've never been able to respect him after that. As it turns out, my friend and I had already known about the affair, 
Why did he feel the need to inform us? Why did he feel the need to cut this man down in front of us? The power of negative regard that would hopefully change our opinion of the man that he had come to resent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 offers us the antithesis and cure for negative regard. It talks about the power of positive regard. And this text is chiropractic. It can align our faith in the right way and make us healthy and make us whole. So I want to talk about three terms that acutely describe God's redeeming work. They all begin with the same letter. That's not my invention. It just is from the Bible. Uh, The first is regard. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In his 30s, Paul of Tarsus was forced to rethink what we called in the 1990s his worldview. He had an encounter, a surprising, unpredictable encounter with the risen Jesus, which caused him uh, to have a breakdown. And the breakdown occurred in part because of his understanding of old creation and new creation. In Judaism, which is a linear religion, believes that history is going somewhere, you had a a definitive line between this old creation, this old era, which is marked by sin, capitulation, darkness, sickness, uh, and the ice capades. And then, that was really funny, and then there's the uh, new age, the new era, the new creation, which is coming after Messiah arrives. When Messiah comes, everything will be immediately remedied. But there is a definitive line between the ages. St. Paul came to discover that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the new creation, the new Genesis, but spliced, oddly enough, into the middle of the old age. So in the old age, with its sin, sickness, and the ice capades, everything continues as it always has, but growing from seedling form, there is a new world arising within the old world. In Jesus Christ, there was new creation. But it wasn't just for Jesus. Paul thought that we could attach to Jesus by faith and by trusting in Christ and being grafted into Christ. That's his language. We are in Christ. For those who are in Christ, we too are defined as that new creation. Yes, we are surrounded by an old world. We have old flesh and old problems that are reminiscent of the old age. Those things cling to us still. And yet, in seedling form, there is a new life. We are, to quote St. John, born again. And when you're born again, you start embryonically and you continue to grow this new life inside of you. And so all of us who place faith, trust, lean into Jesus Christ for legitimacy, are regarded by heaven as a new creation even when we feel mostly old. The heavenly perspective is, you are new. That is how God sees you and how God sees me. And Paul's hope 
is that this gospel of positive regard will affect how we deal with other people who are made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ. His hope is that we will cease negative regard, or to use his language, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is part of our inner life. It isn't skin, muscle tissue. The flesh is part of our inner life. It is self-absorbed. It is defensive. It is attracted to things that are either shiny or gross, but loves them both, and loves us weekly, loves BuzzFeed, loves gossip, loves hearing about things that other people are doing, which are sordid. Loves it in part because we wish we were them, and in part because we want to criticize people who do sordid things. The flesh is a bloated slob. I call my flesh Roger. Roger is always with me, living on my shoulder, telling me what I should think and pay attention to. Roger is highly critical and yet indulgent at the same time. Roger lives with me. You have Roger, too, or Roberta. But you have somebody living on your shoulder, and he is whispering or she is whispering in your ear all the time about how you need to regard the world. And the flesh, friends, is always reductionist, always reductionist. It reduces the dignity of people because it defines or regards them by their faults. It revels in fault-finding. Roger, the flesh, scans this crowd with squinted eyes, looking for what it can criticize. Well, there's Bethany Mayo. I mean, I know what she was like in 2003. I mean, don't even get me started. And Pat McElroy. I mean, Pat McElroy. Can you believe it? I know what he said to me in 2015. Never, never going to forget that. And then there's Sarah. She's in church. She was drunk last night. Why is she here? Is she trying to atone for something? What is this about? And that guy, he's dated every girl on campus. Like, what is this about? And why is he here? I don't even know what he believes. Why, why is he here and not at some other church? This is what the flesh does. Bloated, barky, complainy always criticizing and accusing. And the flesh, and I want us to hear this and receive this, the flesh is satanic. You may remember that one of the descriptors of the Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Paul is saying the flesh does not have a passport to the new creation. It stays outside the gate. And moreover, Paul says, we used to regard Jesus from a fleshly perspective, reducing him in some way. Heretic, charlatan, apostate, loser. But we see him thus no longer. And if we cannot see Jesus from the perspective of the flesh, nor can we see people who belong to Jesus from the perspective of the flesh. Not allowed. It's done. The days of the flesh are over. So, regard. God regards you positively from the core of his heart and will not change his mind. And that is to shape how we engage with others. Second, reconciliation. Verse 18. All this, notice the word all, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our new regard is founded upon the reconciliatory nature of God. Uh, Through divine revelation, we have received an unsettling idea that there is enmity between dimensions, between heaven and earth, between the way things ought to be and the way things are, between God and between you. There's something that is out of sorts. Uh, This enmity is deep, but this enmity has died at the foot of the cross. Because the text says God was there in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Why this is important is because sometimes we divide the Holy Trinity in ways that are not helpful. God angry, Jesus nice. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There is no secret God hiding behind Christ who carries a bucket of resentment against you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, which means God is 100% on your side. God is not Poseidon's fork ready to stab you. God is certainly not Allah's scales waiting to see if you measure up. God is not into arbitration, mediating, seeing if we can meet in the middle. No, no, no. God goes all the way with his reconciliatory power until he bleeds, suffers, and dies. All the work, all this is from God. And this reconciliatory work is not neat and tidy. Remember what Tom Torrance, the great theologian, said about the incarnation, that God puts his hand into the world and it comes out bloody. Uh, That God enters in in a messy, expensive way. As he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, he chose the means of the cross to do it. And this reconciliation is the disposition of heaven toward you. Love made a way, and love went all the way to you. There is an unfortunate diagram that is sometimes used in evangelism. I I think the intention is good, but the schematics are a little off. Here's the diagram. Uh, There are two cliffs. There is a chasm between them. You are on one side, God is on the other. And there is planted in the chasm of sin a cross that is supposed to help you get from one side to the other side. That isn't how it works. In reconciliation, God is the one who crosses the chasm over the bridge of the cross and brings you back over. And this is received through sheer naked trust, faith. So reconciliation, God was in Christ reconciling us to himself through the cross. Lastly, righteousness. Verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Regard, reconciliation, and now righteousness. The word righteousness should cause us to melt in our pew. Righteousness is unfiltered veracity unobscured truth, which by its very nature unmasks, unobscures all that is not true. Righteousness means total exposure. And so if righteousness were let loose in this room, it would be Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark all over again. This is what happens at Mount Sinai. You may remember that uh, Moses gave the Israelites strict instructions not to come near the mountain. For if they even touched the mountain, 
they would die. You may know that God uh, ordered the Ark of the Covenant to be carried in a particular way. It was considered God's throne. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is not a treasure box, it's a chair. And when it was being carried and, and, uh, in a way that God didn't command and it was starting to shake, somebody put their hand up to touch the Ark and steady it, steady it, and they died on the spot. I always felt bad for that man, you know? Not a, not a good day. Uh, but... But the idea is that God's righteousness is so real, so powerful, so thick, so present, and so wholly other that no one can approach it and live. But in the New Testament, God does not at the cross banish the concept of righteousness and say it's not important. Remember, Jesus said that he did not come to overthrow the law, but to fulfill it. And at the cross, we have a fulfillment of the righteousness of God. There is only one person who is able to measure up, only one. And what does he do with his measuring upness? He gives it away. He takes into his own skin the spikes of our own evil and gives us in exchange his righteousness, gives it away. Remember, it's the righteousness of God. It's not our possession, but God gives it as a gift to us. This is how righteousness can become a friend rather than a foe. Bernard of Clairvaux called it the happy exchange. Some have translated it the crazy exchange. Jesus Christ gives us what was never ours, and we give Jesus what was never his. And this solves the dilemma. And God becomes both the just and the justifier of those who place faith in Jesus. Gift, friends, always gift. If righteousness is to be a friend rather than a foe, it must be 100% gift. Jeremy Taylor was a 17th century Anglican bishop and a devotional writer. This is what he writes. A holy life is the condition of the covenant on our part. As we return to God, so God returns to us. And then our state returns to the probability of pardon. Let me read that statement again. A holy life is the condition of the covenant on our part. As we return to God, so God returns to us. And then our state returns to the probability of pardon. This is what I call excremental theology. <laughs> Heresy. If I believe that, that righteousness is secured because of what I do, because of my right steps toward God, and then he meets me halfway, Christian terminology has a word for that. It's called semi-Pelagianism. Friends, if I believe that, that we initiate, that we keep this thing going, that we have to hold up our end of the bargain in order for God to hold up his. If I believe that, I would resign immediately as your minister. And if I really believe that, I wouldn't be a Christian. Because I will never be enough for you. I will not be enough for my family. I will not be enough for myself. And I certainly won't be enough for God, who has higher standards than all of us put together. I don't have that much love in me. But God does. 
And so I, instead of lining up with Jeremy Taylor, line up with St. Paul, who says in Galatians 6, far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Our Father does not regard us with derision or harshness because he cannot do so. He cannot. Our sins no longer live in divine memory. There is no voice of accusation against your life because it has been subsumed, swallowed up, nullified, and dissolved in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Back to the extravagant cheese-wheeled dinner party for clergy. Driving home with my friend who was quite a talker, but was oddly and uncomfortably silent. He was visibly distressed. And he said quietly, Ethan, it's been 35 years, man. 35 years. Our friend repented. He said he was sorry. He told his wife. They reconciled. They have four grown children. And he's helped hundreds of people, thousands, to understand Jesus. 35 years. Then he began to sob, and he said, are we ever really forgiven? You know, I don't know. I don't know. From a human perspective, I don't know. But we do know God's perspective. And aren't you glad that God is not like you? That God is not like me? That God isn't fleshly? God doesn't have a Roger speaking into his ear? telling him how disgusting we are and how much he should hate us. He doesn't read us weekly, and he is not captivated by the sordid. He drowns the sordid in his own righteousness. This is heaven's permanent disposition toward you, positive regard, reconciliation, and righteousness. May these three things give birth to a new being, a new way of seeing a new way of living. I'll close with this image. There is a small dungeon in the Tower of London, which is oddly enough located just below the chapel. It has a large oak door that blocks out all of the light. It measures four foot wide by four foot high. It is called the Little Ease because it gives no place to stand, no place to lie down. It is dark airless, cramped, and crippling. It's a little box. It is easy in this life to have a collection of little eases in which we put people, defining them, cramping them into our narrow little definitions. But the wondrous word of this passage is that we now have the possibility of opening the large oaken door 
and letting them out to define people more generously and love them more wastefully than we ever thought possible. Because Jesus Christ is not your jailer. He is your smiling liberator, freeing us from the little ease. That's my prayer for us as we leave this place today, that we let people go and that our disposition would match the disposition of your Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.